Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 408 of the podcast. It is April 7th, 2021. Our guest today is Katie Lebeds. You'll hear more about her in a minute. To get links and show notes and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 408. And again, I want to thank our sponsor, Styles Associates. We are joined today by Katie Lebetz. She is author of uh, the new book, newly released. It's called How to Improve Absolutely Anything, Continuous Improvement in Your Home, Office, and Family Life. So Katie, thank you for being here today. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Great, Mark. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Excited to to be here today to talk about my new book. Yeah, well, it would be good. You know, we're going to learn more about your background. We're going to talk about the book. And then um, one other thing I just saw recently, uh, you know, Michigan is my home state. So I always follow closely what the Michigan Lean Consortium is doing. Um, there's some news. Um, I'll, I'll let you share it if you want to talk about that real quick. <laughs> Hey, thanks, Mark. I greatly appreciate it. So I have recently been named the chair of the Michigan Lean Consortium. I'm very excited about that. I grew up in Michigan also, so it's close to my heart, uh, though I live in Wisconsin currently. So Michigan Lean Consortium, what we do is we help uh, to promote continuous improvement practices and lean thoughts uh, in the state of Michigan to help the Michigan uh, economy thrive and help people to continue to grow and spread the good news about lean and continuous improvement. Yeah, we can do um, the hand thing for the audience. You know, I grew up in Livonia outside of Detroit. How about you? Me, for me, I grew up uh, a little bit higher up here. I grew up in Flint, uh, near Flint. Actually, I went to, uh, um, grew up in Clarkston. My parents li- live in um, Grand Blank right now. So, um, so yay to anybody that went to Bishop Foley High School in Madison Heights or uh, graduated from Oakland University in Rochester. So uh, that's uh, that's where my background is. Well, good. Well, I'm glad we have those Michigan connections. I'm sure we have a lot of listeners from Michigan, considering the amount of lean activity that um, always has been going on there and, and continues to happen in uh, the great state of Michigan. So. Um, congratulations or thank you for taking on that leadership role with the MLC. And I'll make sure there's a link to their website in in the show notes. Thanks so much. Yep. MichiganLean.org. Great. So, Katie, before we talk about the book, I I do like to ask guests about their lean origin story. When did you first get introduced to lean? How and where did it resonate with you, you know, to really kind of stick with you through your career this way? What, what's your story? Oh, thanks for asking, Mark. Uh, my story is an interesting one. So my background is in IT. So I went to school for a management information systems degree and started my professional career. And uh, I was tapped on the shoulder by two individuals. Uh, uh, I used to work for Jable, so largest uh, electronics manufacturer in the world. And two individuals there saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And they tapped me on the shoulder and they said, hey, we'd love you to join this green belt class. And I said, 
Um, you know, I don't think so. I've done enough math, right? So if anybody has an IT degree, you know, we do a lot of math. And I said, I'm done with statistics. I don't really want to do that. And they persisted and it changed the trajectory of my entire career. So that changed uh, my focus to one of lean and continuous improvement. So obviously I got my green belt, moved on to my black belt, and I have my master black belt. So never turned back. Uh, but the area of specialty for me is helping those in non-manufacturing. So IT, HR, finance, legal, healthcare, et cetera. That's my specialty. And, and I'm able to do that because I've been in manufacturing and I have the background uh, in non-manufacturing. So, yeah. So when you were, was it back in IT or like, was there a moment where lean really like really grabbed you where you realized okay this is not something not just something you're being maybe you know at some point forced to learn but it, it's become <laughs> a a passion and something that's really important to you was there a moment or was it an evolution uh, I think there was um, definitely probably a moment when I was doing my initial green belt and black belt projects um, where, number one, it reinforced my love of data. And number two, realizing that the data that you have is telling you the story and you just have to pay attention to the story in order to be able to solve your problems. And I think a lot of times we don't do that. And in one of one of my projects, my earlier lean projects, it was like this, this solution is so obvious and we never looked in that particular direction before. So it was exciting to be able to say, hey, look, I'm applying everything that I've learned and I'm making things better for my employers and for my customers and of course, for my employees and my team members. So that was really exciting. And, you know, it ended up saving us money um, in the long run. And I've seen the evolution of that over time. And really, you know, it's it's impactful even to you. You know, you, you're, you're Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt. So you uh, have the knowledge, skills, and abilities to do all these things and show people. But when the rubber hits the road and you're seeing savings of $4 million or so uh, with other customers, that's really when, even for me, it takes me a step back to astonish me too. So what are, what are some you know, key lessons or observations do you think, Katie, when, when you started working and focusing on areas outside of manufacturing? I think at one point in the book you referred something about the, the, the carpet walkers. Is that the phrase? <laughs> the carpet walkers. How, how, how is this different when dealing with carpet walkers? <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, carpet walkers, right? That's anybody that's not on the manufacturing floor. Well, the rest of us are called carpet walkers, if you've heard that term before. And it's different for us because um, for in many regards, a lot of the technology or a lot of the books that you'll read, right, in the education that you may receive in Lean and Continuous Improvement very much focuses on manufacturing. And the reason it's done that way is because a lot of times, you know, you can make a change in manufacturing and walk by it the next day and notice, oh, wow, that's different, that's moved, that's updated, there's a new poster, or, you know, this whole line is, is configured differently. In IT, HR, finance, you can't necessarily walk through somebody's department like that and be able to say, oh, wow, wow, that report's running much faster now. Uh, so I think it's it's kind of the 
um, energy <laughs> and the excitement that you get to be able to say, hey, behind the scenes, there is so much good going on. And then you eventually end up seeing that um, as it applies to your customers, right? So your customers start to notice that, that, oh, we don't have as much downtime or three o'clock every day, you know, our systems aren't just all slowing down at the same time. <laughs> With they, There have been improvements that have been made. And, you know, what, what's sometimes called, uh, well, you know, I was about the, I don't know why I'm stumbling over the phrase or I'm hesitating over the phrase knowledge work, because I think, you know, people who work on concrete floors, let's say in manufacturing, are also relying on knowledge. Um, like, but when we think about, let, let me just call it office settings, I guess, um, or electronic work, the waste is a lot of times less visible. And, and right. what I hear you saying also is that some of the changes then are also less visible. I was wondering if you could share an example or just elaborate on that a little bit. Sure, absolutely. Um, th there have been um, changes that I've worked with the customers that are extraordinarily impactful and in, in how much time it's saving. And always the caveat, just like any other lean practitioner will tell you, Mark, and I'm sure you've told other people the same thing, right? This is about allowing you to have more time to do more value-added work, right? It's not about eliminating jobs. And that's that's not the focus whatsoever. Um, from an IT standpoint, uh, there are many instances where we've been able to implement um, automation, right? And automation is is hand-in-hand, -hand, IT and lean and continuous improvement, where things have been done manually, taken, as an example, one, one report uh, for somebody that was working on it and it was driving this person nuts. It was all manual, right? And it took hours and hours. It took like 30 hours to complete. And we were able to automate that for, and it was less than a minute, less than a minute. There was air checking, there was automation, no manual lookup. Everything was in compliance to a standard they were trying to meet too. So it's, it's extraordinarily impactful. Um, it, you can also obviously apply that to HR. If you start and take a minute and look at, and I hear the same story often, how long does it take you to hire somebody? Right. Especially now. Right. So this is we have even had an evolution of that process. But, you know, for some organizations, it can take 120 plus days to hire somebody uh, once they have the posting listed and they've gone through even through the interview process. The decision afterwards um, is taking a very long time. You know, it's taking weeks even after the interviews are done to make that call. So um, how can we improve on that process, too? Yeah, when things take that long, companies end up losing candidates if um, the process is dragged out. And, you know, if somebody is looking for a better job or needs a job to begin with, then, I mean, there are so many reasons to try to take waste out of that process, eliminating delays and, 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 and not doing, you know, I think eliminating that waste and those delays doesn't mean doing a sloppy job of hiring. It just means doing it more effectively, which is which is good for the company. It's good for that candidate. It's it's good for everybody involved. Right. And then also being able to provide feedback, right? Especially if it happens to be an internal candidate. So if you have an internal candidate for a position and you choose to hire or not to hire them, you owe them that explanation and so that they can continuously develop and improve. So on that thought of improvement, um, you know, there, there are many ways different people might define or try to summarize 
continuous improvement. You do so in your book. Um, again, the title there for the listener is How to Improve Absolutely Anything. How, how do you define continuous improvement, Katie? Uh, it's a never-ending quest to make things better. It really is. And just when you think, oh, I've gotten it perfect, there's another opportunity for you to make it better again. Um, so it's really just never sitting back on your laurels and saying, okay, it's good enough. Uh, you know, yeah, of course you may need time to take a break and move away from that, but you can circle back around sometime from a different perspective and say, wow, I could have, I could have done that differently. Here's, here's another opportunity for improvement or that can change as technology changes for us, right? Uh, I'm sure we've all seen that over the past year where we have had to make, uh, improvements or continuous improvement part of our day-to-day -day activity because it has been strange. Honestly, it's been strange for all of us. So how do we improve on something like a Kaizen event or um, a, a brainstorming event when we're not in person, right? We're not together. So how do we continuously improve that situation and, you know, finding technology and, and uses of, of different things to be able to make them happen? So there's a couple aspects of what you said there I think we can, we can delve into. One is the idea, like as you put it, never-ending. Like I think there's sometimes this misunderstanding. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. You, you, you can tell when somebody maybe is new to continuous improvement when they ask a question like, well, what happens when we get rid of all the low-hanging fruit? <laughs> yes. Like a different, if we're going to use that analogy, I guess, right? Well, the tree continues growing and more low-hanging fruit appear. Like as we're evolving or innovating or doing new things, it seems like we're on the same page. I mean, it's just, it's 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 never ending because new opportunities arise. Is that fair to say? Right. And then also my favorite, uh, one of my favorite items in the book is talking about how much waste is in an average process, right? So when people think, oh, if I, I can just make this situation better and then walk away from it and never come back to it again, an average process, right? has 95% waste, which means there's endless opportunities for improvement. There's more opportunities for us to improve on everything every day. Um, so, you know, when you take a look at that and say, oh my gosh, you know, how can I make this, this process better until I do it again? And then of course that, that wraps up the PDCA concept too. And it's, you know, funny to think about 95%, whatever that number might be. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. It's directionally correct. And, you know, that often gets measured if we're looking at a value stream map of, you know, that proportion of value added time to total time through a system, whether that's flowing through a factory or a patient coming through um, some sort of healthcare value stream. And, you know, I'm thinking back to lessons, you know, I think this even goes back to things that um, Taiichi Ono wrote of looking at the difference between like keeping everybody busy and looking at that versus focusing on flow. And I, I'd, I'd be curious if you can think of an example, maybe from um, a carpet dwelling kind of situation <laughs> where everybody is busy, but yet things don't flow. How is it that everybody can be seemingly almost 100% utilized, but that flow ratio is 5% or the waste component of the cycle time is 95% waiting. Um, yeah. How, how, how is that? And what, what's an example that comes to mind? 
Sure. Uh, I worked with a client and their process uh, for managing their internal orders and their internal quotes was all manual. Uh, and I'm I'm talking pe- paper and pen manual, right? So uh, there's different levels there. And, um, and during that time, they didn't necessarily see that there was something um, not, I won't say there's nothing wrong with the process, right? So let's back up a second and, and make sure that we cover it's the process that's broken, not the person, right? So we all know that, but it's good to remind ourselves that it's not Sue's job, that the process is is moving slow or that it's manual, right? That's the process that they're following today. And walking through this process with them where they didn't necessarily see that there were opportunities for improvement because that's the way they've always done it. And we hear that quite often. And then when we start asking questions and saying, hey, what are opportunities for automation? How can we get rid of the manual process? Um, All of these conversations with this particular client started happening uh, at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And, you know, people are in all stages of changes, right? And some are reluctant to change and some embrace it. Well, change got accelerated for them when we all went into lockdown. And that was completely new for them because they've always relied on paper and uh, they're not used to being remote. So those things uh, had to be put into practice immediately. So some of the changes you may have been on the fence on, guess what? We're doing them right now because we're not there together to be able to hand paper back and forth to each other. And it's been it's been extremely successful for them. So uh, they've taken the the they've drank uh, the Kool-Aid. Right. And they're they're following the process and they're continuously improving. They haven't said, oh, since we made this new screen, I can make uh, I, I can just step away and, and it'll be all better. Now they're looking to say, well, wait a minute, we can even make it better than that. And so there's that that mindset again, you know, that being driven to continuously make things better that 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 comes up again. Um, but I you know I think it's interesting. You look at the concept of batching, like the the batches may be again like in manufacturing very clear and hard to miss. In office work, maybe the paper batches are more visible than electronic batches. I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you can think of some cases where flow has been improved. Like you said, not blaming individuals. It's not a lack yeah, of, of effort, but it's the structure of the work. Where where does batch reduction um, come, come to play in the, in the types of settings you work in? I'm glad you asked that question. I have a perfect example. So I worked with a group that uh, in the finance department, just like any organization on the planet, right? In the finance department, speed is is on their side. They need speed. They need to be able to close out the books at the end of the month. They need to be able to run their reports. So from an IT perspective also, you see that surge in, in usage of the equipment, right? In the software and the hardware, et cetera, towards the end of the month. And then finally, somebody said, we have this many batches or this um, many uh, reports being batched at the end of the month. And uh, 
somebody finally asked and said, do we need all of these reports? So at the end of the month, there was a batch and they were 30 different reports are being run in that batch. And so we went back to finance and said, hey, can you take a look at these? These are all the reports that are running in a batch at the end of the month, which is causing significant strain. We we were able to make the correspondence to the strain on the system and on the, on the hardware and take a look at them, see if you need them. You know, wh- which, which ones of these do you use? Out of 30, guess how many they actually used? Oh, wow. Okay. I was going to guess like six, but yeah, two. two. That's, I mean, that's not terribly surprising. (laughs) No, it's not because things, things evolve over time, right? And you need this report and we thought we needed that report or that person moved on to a different position. And I'm sure when you start your career, you have, you don't remember. I mean, I never remembered after being at places for five, six years, what I asked the first year when I came on board to automate. So um, that was really interesting. That was an interesting uh, activity to be able to say, okay, now that's just one department, right? And that was just one area. So what happens if we started to expand that out and say, hey, you know, this department or that area or that site or this group or even down to this person, why are you having this being automatically run and and taking resources away? Uh, Which it made a huge and significant impact also on the ability to be able to use resources more effectively. Yeah. Yeah. So it's always good to step back and, and ask or do that check of, who is the customer for that report? Are right. they still using it? You know, maybe having a process over time, so it's not just the once a decade spring cleaning of the reports. But what's what's a more ongoing process for making sure that list doesn't just grow instead right. of ever being being pruned back? I guess. <laughs> or when you're about to get audited, yes. No, that's not a good time to do that either. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you're you're, you're reminding me of a story. Um, this was in uh, a hospital laboratory. This is probably going back 12, 13 years ago. There was this printer. And every time I would walk by out in that lab space, I, it somehow caught my eye that it was always blinking and flashing that it was out of paper. And I think I made some comment about like, well, you know, I notice it's it's always blinking. Um, what kind of process can we put in place to make sure it gets loaded with paper? I assumed that these printouts were um, helpful and necessary information. And the response surprised me. They said basically, oh, well, no, that printer just churns out unnecessary paper backup <laughs> copies constantly. And so we intentionally make sure that printer doesn't have paper. <laughs> like that, w- okay. that was their workaround. Well, that's And there was start, an opportunity right? to get, it was a start. It was a workaround or a short-term countermeasure. Um, Because unfortunately, they didn't have the ability or it wasn't high enough priority (laughs) to make the change to to stop just churning out, uh, wasting that paper. So this kind of waste uh, pops up everywhere, it seems. Sure does. Um, um, So, so Katie, one other thing that you said that was really interesting is this idea of sometimes needing to take a break. And I think there's really something to be said for that. Um, you know, when we talk about continuous improvement, what do we really mean by continuous? And is there a point where if there's so much change happening, there's risk of it being overwhelming? Can, can you kind of you know, share some thoughts in general or even if there's a specific story about when taking a break or a pause is helpful maybe to uh, just stabilize things before then diving back into more improvement? Absolutely. So first of all, when I'm working with a client, uh, 
when we're talking about continuous improvement, and let's say we're working on a project, maybe we have a Kaizen event and we have some outcomes from that event. Um, one of the things that I do like to remind them is that even if we are implementing our future state, we need to have that future state stable. And at a minimum, it has to be for at least a quarter, unless there is something time sensitive about it. So maybe you're working on a project now uh, that will you will engage with that or run with that project, that new future state in August. Um, so it's it's all you know time dependent on what's happening uh, in your particular circumstance. And it also, you know, like you said, it's it's good to take a break from it. So you've made things better you've tried it out for at least a quarter and it's doing really well, that's fantastic. And then what I would suggest then is reviewing that after you reviewed it for the first quarter, then come back to review it in either six months to or to a year. It depends on your um, certain circumstance, depends on the situation, the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and then come back and use you know the, the adage of fresh eyes, right? So when you come back, you're going to have a look at it from a different perspective, even bringing in different people back to, to review it again, where it may not be super obvious to you, right? now but somebody else will look at it down the line and say why did they do it like that so yeah so um maybe we can talk you know let's talk more uh, about the book now katie um again the title is how to improve absolutely anything continuous improvement in your home office and family life there you go thanks for holding it up i have it uh, right. on my kindle which isn't as fun <laughs> it's, it's not as fun is it <laughs> It's nice having the physical, uh, the physical copy. Um, so you've talked about IT settings, manufacturing settings, office and administrative settings. So then the book is focused on, as the subtitle says, home, office, and family life. So I love asking yes. authors, you know, we've already talked about some of your lean origin story. What was the origin story for the book? The origin story for the book was I have, uh, I'm, I'm very blessed in my life and I'm very grateful for all the blessings that I have. And one of the blessings that I have is I, I speak at conferences, right? Global conferences, local conferences, and I also do a lot of teaching. And that's probably the number one question is what book would you recommend? And if somebody is just starting out on their journey, um, I wanted to be able to recommend a book to them that would be easily understood. And I teach based on the the concept that if you can apply this at home, then you can apply this at work. And if you are able to, to nail 5S at home and you've got it down pat, it's much easier than for you to be able to go to work and apply the same concepts. So that's why I wrote their book. And I, I also wanted it. And Mark, you and I have read books and now written books. And you know, some books that I'm talking about where you start to read it and you're like, oh my gosh, this is a textbook and I should be in a college class right now reading it. <laughs> uh, no knock on college or college classes, but some of them are pretty dry. Um, I've read many of them just as you have. And I just, I couldn't relate to it in a way where I'm able to say, you know, how would I actually use this concept in real life? Uh, because if I can't explain it to anybody, then they're not going to be able to understand it either. So I needed to get it down to that level of here's here's how we do PDCA at home with laundry detergent. Okay, let's be real. Everybody washes their clothes, even if you go to a laundromat. Let's talk about how we can apply those concepts there and then transition to how we can apply them at work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're right. The book is written in you know a, a really nice conversational story based um, tone, 
which I, I think Thank is uh, really engaging. Um, but I guess I should have asked first. I mean, so um, before the book even was, uh, you know, the the I guess the what led to the collection of stories of what you were applying in your own home with your own family. Like, do you remember some of the first things, first examples where you started applying what you were learning at work in ways that were beneficial at home? Well, sure. But, you know, I don't always tell my husband that. So <laughs> we apply these <laughs> concepts and I don't just, uh, just so everybody knows, I don't stop my husband and say, Andrew, now we're going to practice PDCA or, <laughs> uh. <laughs> you know, let's, let's now do uh, 5S in that particular area. So uh, obviously I, I have all these concepts that, you know, we've all known or, or read about. I have them all in my head all the time. That's why I tell people the the voice, the voice at the tone you hear in the book, that's the tone in my head. That's my, that's me talking to myself all the time when it comes to, to these concepts. But, you know, really it's about especially when you first come together, when you first get married to somebody or start dating somebody and, you know, you, you compliment each other in many ways. And then there's, you kind of notice opportunities, right. And, you know, it goes both ways. So my husband has definitely taught me a lot. Uh, he retired from general motors and GM has been doing lean and continuous improvement for a very long time. He worked on the manufacturing line. So a lot of those concepts, in um, continuous improvement, we can both relate to. So I think the first one that pops out of my head, though, is is what I talk about in the book is is doing laundry. And my my husband's retired, and obviously I, I work full time. I worked in corporate America for many years, and then started my own company, Learning to Lean. And back when I have to wear dress pants, right? Black dress pants to work are a staple. And he was doing the laundry for us, and. I would hold up my dress pants and, and ask him like, how do we get white stains all over my black dress <laughs> pants? Right. So, you know, and it's, it's this delicate balance, right? So you're not going to say, why are you doing that? You're ruining my clothes to an investigation of why that was happening to begin with. So it leads to the first question that I always tell everybody is what changed? So what changed before we were doing laundry? We didn't have this problem. And then what are the possible, um, the root causes to this? And my husband, by the way, was uh, very much determined that it was our fabric softener sheets. Uh, and Because that was a change? That was a change, no? different okay. fabric yeah. softener sheets. Um, he also didn't believe in them. So, <laughs> mm. <laughs> so uh, but then it led us back to looking at the laundry detergent. And we were using Arm & Hammer baking soda laundry detergent, which inherently is white. If you cook, you know that. And it was leaving the white stains on the pants. So as soon as we ran out and tried a different laundry detergent, problem was solved. Uh, so that's, that's probably one of the things that sticks in my mind the most is, you know, there it is. That's PDCA. That's root cause analysis right there in real life. And it goes to show, I mean, maybe it's less detectable sometimes at work. I mean, I'd say this you know, partly in jest, like he had an agenda. It's hard to do root cause analysis. He had this anti-dryer sheet agenda. Um, so he gravitated to that as a cause, even if that maybe wasn't it. 
That's right. And it happens at work. Like you said, this happens at work all the time. And I refer to it as uh, problem solving paintball, right? Hmm. So you are, you have a problem and you have people, you have lots of people going, it's this, it's this, no, it's that. No, it's gotta be this. No, it absolutely has to be that. When you haven't taken time to do a root cause analysis to really determine what's the root cause of your problem and what is noise, which is mm-hmm. the rest of it. Yeah. And, you know, I think of a lesson, you know, I'll give credit uh, to Pascal Dennis when I had the opportunity to um, work with his group some years ago and, and learn from him and some other former Toyota people. Let's say using this laundry example, you could be talking about it in the laundry room or in the kitchen nearby. And let's say, you know, your husband says, ah, OK, well, I know well, why. And we talk through it. So I know the root cause. It's the dryer sheets. Like, well, one really invaluable lesson I learned from Pascal is like if we're in a conference room or even if we're talking about it in the shop floor, the real, let's say, you know, the healthcare shop floor. Um, when we talk about it, like at best, we have a suspected root cause. And then we would go and implement a countermeasure, which might include eliminate the dryer sheets. Right. We haven't yet, we, we wouldn't say we know root cause, but then you could go do a load of laundry without the dryer sheets and then, oh, guess what? There's still white residue. Right. Okay, we, we learned something. The root cause is clearly not the dryer sheets. And, you know, so I, it makes me think of, of that lesson of, you know, try to give that reminder to the listener. Because, you know, I, I think there's this risk of a trap of, they said, well, we know the root cause. Well, why? Because we talked about it. And, and people get really fixated on that and they don't yep. want to then look at evidence that maybe points in a different direction. Right. Even if even if that evidence is pretty strong. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the definition like we talked at the beginning of the podcast about continuous improvement. You know, it's a, it's a never ending quest to make things better. Um, but, you know, it's, it's also um, making sure that, you know, we approach that with uh, a logical and a, and a logical manner to be able to solve those problems, right? Um, it's also learning, right? So that is so important. And, you know, you hear people all the time, you know, I've failed or I've done this or I've done that. And often I, you know, I, I coach folks through that and say, it's okay, because you, you will learn something from this, all of my challenges and all of the things that I've been through in my life, I've learned something from it. Right. So I've either learned like, yes, this is, this is a great way to approach it or no, I'm not going to do that again. And it's okay. And I think many times we don't give ourselves as humans enough grace to be able to say, it's okay. You know, I've learned that I, I really, I really don't, I don't like this food or I don't want to live here or I don't want a job like that, or the next company I'm going to go to, I would like a different culture. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, right? As long as you learn something from it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And so the book isn't, you know, completely about laundry because, you know, as it say, you know, you know, as the title says, you can improve absolutely anything, but there's a section in the back of the book of uh, practical tips and tricks. And, yeah, I think on the one hand, it's good to teach people an improvement mindset and thought process that they can use to figure out their own um, problems. I think there is some uh, a time and a place, though, for sharing examples of improvement because you can, you know, as uh, the late Norm Bodek would say, you know, you can steal shamelessly. There's nothing wrong if somebody else has uh, a countermeasure to a problem that you already also have. Um, go and try that countermeasure. And if it right. works, great. Or you can build upon it. And so I think, you know, there, there is something to be said for sharing 
those tips and tricks. But one one that stood out to me as uh, of, um, one I hadn't ever thought of is related to laundry. This idea of using a dry erase marker to write instructions <laughs> on the dryer. I thought that was really clever because that enameled finish it, it wipes off really easily. It, is, right. it basically is a whiteboard, right? And you have your erasers, <laughs> right? Yeah. Even if you didn't have an eraser, you can use your fingers, right? Or Kleenex or an old dryer sheet and wipe it off. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Another use for the dryer sheet, earning its keep. There you go. Um, but I thought it was a really interesting idea of writing, you know, some sort of instructions because, you know, the countermeasure my wife and I, I guess, have developed is like we I, I do my laundry and she does her laundry. OK. With um, very little overlap because. I, yeah, I, I would be afraid of uh, messing up, you know, what, what can go through the dryer or what yeah. cycle or what. And so, you know, that's that's been our countermeasure. But if we got to a point where she was asking me to do her laundry, I would totally use the dry erase marker trick. Right. And, and coach her, please give me some standardized work uh, so <laughs> I don't create any laundry defects. Because there are a lot of things that can go wrong with laundry. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, a lot of my friends have kids. Um, our kids are four-legged. So, uh, but my friends that have two-legged children, you know, they talk about that all the time. So it's, you know, a kid's jersey or something that needs to be washed from an equipment standpoint from, you know, physical activity outside, whether it's soccer or baseball or football or whatever, but can't go in the dryer because, you know, it's going to shrink or something bad will happen to it. Right. And it's simple. And that's really the key to the, the whole content of the book is, all of this stuff is simple. I'm not telling you anything that is, uh, you know, you need a PhD to be able to do this, right? This is all just simple, uh, common sense type of activities or things that you can do that are low to no cost. And that's the other aspect of it too, is that I think sometimes when they think of organized, getting organized or, or doing improvements that um, they think it costs money, right? So they think that, oh, we have to go to the container store uh, or a place like that, or, you know, read somebody else's book that talks about buying different things, you know, that are expensive. And, you know, I'm an advocate of, you know, reuse if you have it, uh, or, you know, let's do something cheap, go to the dollar store. It doesn't have to be super expensive to do this. And that's at home and at work. Yes, that is a classic Continuous improvement lesson or a Kaizen lesson, however you want to put it, creativity before capital or mind over money or mind, use your mind before money. That's right. um, a great reminder. I mean, thinking to that section in the back on practical tips and tricks, is there one, Katie, that stands out to you as a favorite? If, like if you were to share one trick with any household in America, what would you share? think the one that helps me the most that I probably use the most, quite frankly, is the grocery list, right? And I have the grocery list uh, segregated out. Um, I have to I have to say I come from a, a line of organized people. My my family's very organized too. My parents actually have an Excel spreadsheet uh, for the grocery store that lists all the items in what aisle it's in until they, you know, change it again. <laughs> So uh, that little that little quick grocery list really helps to keep me organized uh, when I go to the grocery store because it drives me nuts just to have a list of things that I need. Um, if I can put them in categories and segregate them, uh, it's more likely I won't forget something. And that's really the that's the whole key for something like that is is to not forget whatever that uh, unknown item may be. <laughs> yeah, and even beyond the not forgetting, um, I'm thinking when I do grocery shopping, let's say if I've got um, 
four recipes that I'm planning out and I'm going to go do that shopping as a batch. And like some people yes. may cringe. I'm like, so, hey, sometimes a batch is necessary and appropriate. Yep. Um, I'm, you know, so um, especially during COVID times, hey, let's minimize the risk of going yes. to the grocery store uh, by not going every single day, maybe. But yeah, I've been doing that for a while. So I have a list. I know the grocery store well enough. It's not by aisle number. But I know the first department I'm going to walk through is vegetables and produce. Right. So I will put everything from those different recipes or other things I know I need to buy into the produce category. And then there's like the dairy category, the meat category, the, the center of the store category, if you will. Right. Um, and, and so then what that leads to is not having to double back and say, oh, I got to walk all the way across the store because I need a cucumber. Right. I know. I'm just saying it, it, that list is laid out the same way as the grocery store is um, for the most part, like you said. And it does help you from, you know, having to, the worst thing is to get to the other end of the store, right? And decide that you needed something for the vegetable aisle. <laughs> so, yeah. so um, yes, on the one hand, it's some additional steps that go on the Fitbit, but sometimes you, you don't have time for that and you could save that inefficient grocery store time and turn that into real exercise. <laughs> right. And my Afterwards. other favorite one is the, the red folder. So I'm sure you've read in the book, it talks about using this plastic red folder that you could probably get for a dollar or cheaper or buy it in bulk on Amazon. Um, this red folder has, I have used that technique for years. So in my, in my life, I have had the privilege of traveling all over the world and I don't like where things are just in, in ra random places in my bags and things like that. I want to quickly get to them. So it's a plastic, it happens to be red folder. And inside the folder are all my travel documents, um, anything that I may need for, for travel. So my boarding passes, things like that. And then it also, I put my receipts in there. So when I come back from travel, um, depending on, you know, what the logistics are of that, then I have all my receipts in one place instead of, did I put in my purse, my pocket, my coat, my backpack, where did I put all this? Um, we use it. Uh, I'm getting ready to go on a trip uh, with uh, one of our horses and I have one of those inside our horse trailer. So if you've ever traveled animals, you know, you need to have certain documentation with you at all times. So that's inside the trailer in a red envelope. So it's very easily accessible. Um, it stands out, right? The other reason it's red and plastic is the color and the texture, because I'd like to be able to go into my backpack without looking. I can just feel which, where's that red envelope and pull it out because the texture of it. So. so we are birds of a feather because I use a similar kind of plastic folder method. There you go. Um, folds over and you know it kind of ties shut. Um, but I think where I could improve upon my improvement is leveraging your idea of, I, I like the idea of the red folder because then if it's coming down to a matter of visibility, right there it is. So that's Absolutely. a great tip. And it um, can what, work for oh, anything. No, it, yeah. I was just going to say it could work for, for anything that you, that yeah. you may need. Yeah. Um, one other uh, example there that, that jumped out to me that I think, you know, can apply to um, the office setting or a work from home setting is the idea of color coding meetings. And so maybe this is, I think, you know, this is your idea or I learned it from you. So um, can, can you share a little bit about that idea? Absolutely. So 
it doesn't matter what email platform that you have. And we'll talk about a manual and, and a, I would say automated way would be you, by using a system, right? So by using, I use Gmail and Outlook and the, every system allows you to do this, but I color code my meetings and my calendars. So any meeting that, um, you know, is a one-on-one like this will be a green color. And maybe I have a personal meeting on Friday. Maybe I have a doctor's appointment. I put that in my calendar and I color it purple. Um, anytime I have a Kaizen event, I have that in red. So when I open my calendar, I always open my calendar on Sunday and obviously I look through it during the week, um, but I can be able to quickly distinguish and see what's happening during the week. Um, you can expand this to beyond your calendar. You can do this for your emails. Uh, so I have folders in Gmail that are uh, a specific color based on what topic I'm, I'm talking about or I want to file. Uh, you can do this also in Outlook. So if you use Outlook, an incoming mail, let's say every incoming mail from Mark, I want it to be green. You can put in a rule in place so that it highlights that email um, coming into your inbox in green. So you can automatically see, you know, maybe I want to make sure that I read Mark's first or, you know, you can color it in, in red if it happens to be a, a particular situation where it comes from a, a particular group. Maybe it's a system warning, something like that. Uh, very quick and easy to be able to do. Uh, if you don't know how to do it, just, just honestly Google it because there are multiple uh, ways to be able to do this, but it makes you so much more efficient. Yeah, and and whether that's um, you know Mac and the Apple ecosystem or Gmail or Outlook, there are different matter. ways of addressing that, that right. similar issue. Yep, use the colors. Uh, like I said in the book, I think I I am the only person that ever had an entire group of individuals that work for me that were completely colorblind, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully yeah. you uh, are able to be able to see color and be able to, to utilize that too. Just one of the many issues with red, green color coding of metrics. You got it. Not me, yeah. but other men who yes. uh, tend to be more, more likely to be red, green, colorblind than women. Absolutely. So you have to take that into account, right? And, and not everybody raises their hand when they say, hi, welcome to my team or welcome, you know, I'm coming onto your team and I'm colorblind. You have to be able to, to work from there to make sure the metrics are understandable, even if they happen to be published in black and white, right? You have to make sure you understand it, make those understandable. Yeah. I mean, I was in a meeting last week um, and we were using an online whiteboarding tool that I know you, you mentioned in your book is one of many that can be helpful, um, Miro. Mm -hmm. And there was some color coding of the virtual post-it notes. And I think it was like difference between pink and purple. And somebody actually spoke up and sort of verbally pulled the and on cord, if you will. And he said, to me, these these all look blurple. Was the color <laughs> that he was describing. So, you know, we had to adjust and, and adapt, but. Absolutely, not hard to do. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you, you've mentioned, you know, this 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 virtual world that we have been um, working in for this last year. And I think we'll probably continue, even if we're in more hybrid modes, we're going to have a lot more uh, remote work. Are, are there any particular lessons that come to mind, kind of thinking back now to the workplace of, um, facilitating or, or leading improvement or working with people in uh, a virtual meeting mode, um, I, ideas that you found um, helpful in terms of improving how you do that? Sure. First of all, 
as the beginning of a meeting, have everybody turn their cameras on. Um, it's really, I can speak for myself, Mark, I'm sure you can speak for yourself too. It's really hard to have a meeting when you're just staring at a black screen with names under boxes. That's really difficult. So one of the things that I do suggest is, you know, even though people may feel reluctant, by now we've seen everybody's cat, kid, dog, everything that has happened and in the background. <laughs> you ever, are, ever have a horse run by behind you? Probably uh, no. not. You should have a horse in the house, right? <laughs> nope. Uh, but uh, I have a cat that likes to meow outside my door, though, while I'm on podcast. So, <laughs> uh, but you know, it's first of all making sure that everybody can be seen, and then understanding your audience, right? So, going back to the concept that we all know, voice of the customer, and making sure that you understand how they prefer to interact. So, if you do ask questions, instead of sitting here going, Bueller, Bueller, is anybody going to respond to me? Understand that maybe they really like the chat feature. And how can we use that? Uh, how can we put people in breakout rooms? Uh, that has been a really popular topic lately with folks is that they'd like to be in a breakout room and then under making sure you understand how to manage those, right? So that they can know that they can ask for help and you can pop in and out. Um, and then of course, using technology that makes it feel like we're together. And it's not just using Zoom or GoToMeeting or anything like that. I'm talking about technology like Miro, which is what, uh, Mark, you were just talking about, Miro.com, Mural.com, Whiteboard on Teams. Uh, it makes it feel like we're actually there together. You can see people's name hovering around when they're, they're moving their cursor and they're picking up a sticky note. Uh, I have done these sessions now numerous times, and that's out of everything that I've been teaching and the interactions I've been having, people like that the most. Yeah. Yeah. Um so one other thing, Katie, before we wrap up, um, this kind of comes back now to um, workplace issues. Um, what are some of your thoughts about, you know, as we're, as we're working with people and engaging people, the phrase, and I think it's always um, a loaded phrase, uh, resistance to change comes up. And I know you have some thoughts um, I'd like you to share for, uh, for the audience on lessons that you've learned about motivations and when, when we're sensing this resistance, uh, what does that tell us? What should we or what could we do in those circumstances? Sure. So obviously there's there's a lot of fear that goes along with change and resistance to change. There's a couple of things that I suggest. First of all, knowing what that person values, right? What do they value? And I talk about in the book, you know, some people value time, other people value money, uh, other people value sleep, right? So what does that person value when they're resisting to change? Uh, and then making sure that you understand what's driving that resistance. Many times it's because they feel like they're not part of the solution, right? So they kind of feel like they're on um, standing on the sidelines and they're not part of that actual solution. So you want to make sure that you can engage them and make sure that they can become a part of it. And then, of course, understanding how they learn, too. So if you are telling a group of people over Zoom that we're going to make all these changes at our company and we're going to go forth and we're going to do that and you're just speaking to them, maybe that person learns better um, by actually seeing something on the screen. So, you know, we don't want to do death by PowerPoint, but sometimes people just need bullet points to be able to relate to. Um, so making sure that we understand that sometimes they, they're kinesthetic learners, so they, they need to be able to understand by doing. So you could use one of the technologies we've already talked about, but getting their engagement, getting their buy-in, getting them curious, right? Getting people curious 
curious about what's around the next corner is really what you're trying to do. How can we make this better and kind of making a, you know, you're not making it, making it a game necessarily, but you're making a game of it where we're saying, how much better could we be? What great things can we accomplish together? And then celebrating those accomplishments, which is hard right now on our virtual world, because, you know, Mark, you and I can't go out for coffee to celebrate this, right? That just doesn't exist right now. So figuring out other ways that people like to be celebrated. And I know a lot of people have tried, you know, after hours, Zoom coffee chats or Zoom cocktails, that works for some. For other posts, for other people, it may be just um, you know, sending them an email and saying, thanks, you did a great job. This is fantastic. Or, you know, virtual gift cards still work today. Amazon is, is probably going crazy and we are, we already know they're going crazy. <laughs> yeah. Right. But you know, yeah. people appreciate that when they can't leave the house or Uber eats or something mm-hmm. like that too. Yeah. The virtual Amazon gift card as a thank you may have uh, superseded the old default, which was uh, the Starbucks gift card. I know. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> But now, um, you know, maybe that'll that'll shift back. People are going to crave um, people are craving those those physical experiences and those physical interactions. So um, it's good that we're getting back to that. So I'm glad. I mean, heck, my, my podcasts have always been a virtual inter, um, uh, interaction. And uh, one, one thing about the pandemic here is it's less likely that uh, a podcast guest doesn't know how to use Zoom. That's true. <laughs> that is um, no, lot, far less education taking place um, around getting the Zoom set up and running and um, and all. So, um, Katie, I really want to uh, thank you. I'm going to thank you verbally here uh, in front of the audience. Thank you for taking time and, and for being a guest today and having uh, the discussion. Um, our, our guest, again, has been uh, Katie Lebeds. Um, her book is How to Improve Absolutely Anything, Continuous Improvement in Your Home, Office, and Family Life. And um, for those of you watching on YouTube, um, you know, show, show the logo on your polo shirt. Your hair is a little sure. bit in the way. Yep. See the, uh, the Learning to Lean logo and um, the website Katie has for that is learningtolean.training. And I'll make sure there are links to that. The Michigan Lean Consortium, michiganlean.org. Um, I guess that best ways for people to contact you if they want to learn more. The book is certainly available on Amazon and yes. I don't have it handy. There's a website for the book, which yes. is how to improve absolutely anything.com. Uh, same tag for social media. You can follow me on Facebook. You can reach out to me on Facebook or any social media or on my webpage. Um, my email is info at learning to lean dot training, uh, but love to be able to talk to you. All right. Well, good. I hope people reach out. I hope people will um, check out the book and uh, and give it a read. You know, this uh, this idea of you know, when people get excited about lean and they start applying it to things in their own home, like that melts away some of this. Like they may be labeled as resistant to change at work when, as you were saying a minute ago, there's there's far more to it than that. But then they go home and do things because it's self-initiated of their own self-interest and self-benefit. These people aren't resistant to change. Maybe right. they're they're just not engaged the right way in the workplace. So Absolutely. Um, I love these examples and I'm really thankful that you uh, did your book. So congratulations for that. And thank Thanks, you again Mark. for being here as my guest. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate being here. Well, thanks again to Katie for being a great guest. You can learn more about 
her work and her book. You can find links by going to leanblog.org slash 408. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate and review the podcast. And if you like the podcast, the best thing you can do is to share it with others. Please share the episode on social media. Please tag me and Katie, especially if you share it on LinkedIn. That's going to help more people learn about Katie's book. And thank you again for spreading and sharing what we're doing here on the podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.